This was published in 1906 in a scientific journal. No possible combination of known substances, known forms of machinery, and known forms of force can be united in a practical machine by which men shall fly long distances through the air. This seems to me as complete as it is possible for the demonstration of any physical fact to be. Simon Newcomb was basically saying in this journal that human flight was physically impossible. Simon Newcomb was a professor of mathematics at Johns Hopkins University, the vice president of the National Academy of Science, and the first president of the American Astronomical Society. He wrote this in 1906. But little did he know that three years prior, the Wright brothers had flown 12 seconds and landed safely the first controlled man-carrying mechanical powered flight in history. It might be hard for us to realize a hundred plus years later that the prevailing thought in the culture and in the scientific community was that flight, navigatable flight by humans was impossible. But then, in the early 1900s, two pastor's kids and bike makers in Dayton, Ohio, through lots of broken gliders and trial and error in the outer banks of North Carolina, proved the world wrong. And who wrote about it? A scientific America? Nature? The New York Times? No. A beekeeper in his beekeeping journal. And this is what he wrote to his monthly subscribers. The rights outstripped the world in demonstrating that a flying machine can be constructed without a balloon. 70 AD, a Gentile physician wrote two-volume work describing how a Jewish Nazarite and 12 Galilean men turned the world upside down. A motley crew that influenced their city bridged ethnic divides in their region and transformed the Roman Empire of 80 million people. 2,000 years later, it's hard for us to imagine that Christianity was not a legitimate belief. It was considered a, cruise, a crazy Jewish sect that believed in the resurrection of its teacher. This is the Acts of the Apostles. And it documents how this motley crew turned the world upside down. Let's find about it, huh? Shall we? Acts chapter 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up 
after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The word of the Lord. Well, welcome. If you're just joining us, you came at the right time because we're starting a new book the book of Acts, and it is much unlike the book we were in in the past in the fall, the prophetic book of Amos. And for some of you, you might be happy about that. And because of that, in a new genre and a new book, we need to look at this book differently than we looked at the prophetic books. This isn't simply poetry or, um, you know, imagery, but instead, this book is different. And Acts seems to be a different genre than almost everything else in the Bible. It combines many different types of writing into one book. Well, the first thing we see that this book is a historical book. That we call like a historical narrative. In very the beginning, we see there was a first book. And the first book that this author wrote was about what Jesus had done on earth, all his things that he had done in um, telling his story and his death and his resurrection, his appearance to the disciples and to us, all the way from his birth to his death and resurrection. That first book, which we've highlighted already, is the book of Luke. And here we get the second volume, the book called the Acts of the Apostles or Acts. And here we see that this book Acts overlaps some of the ending of the book of Luke. The end of Luke, we saw Jesus died on a cross, rose from the dead, and then appeared to his followers. And the gospel gives 10 different appearances of Jesus appearing after his resurrection to the disciples and to others. And Luke gives some of those stories. One of the famous ones that we know is the story of the Emmaus Road. Two disciples walking to Emmaus and Jesus appearing to them. We also see that this book, like Luke, was written to a friend, Theophilus, a Gentile, a non-Jew, to give him the certainty of what had been taught to him about Christianity by his friend Luke, a physician, also a Gentile, and a companion of the apostles, specifically Paul. And here, in this second volume, covering 28 chapters, 
over 32 years, it tells the growth of the disciples and followers of Jesus. And it also explains what was happening on in the world at that time. Acts tells us about Gamaliel, the famous Jewish rabbi at that time in Jerusalem. The famine going on during the, the reign of the Emperor Claudius. The reign of Herod Agrippa over Jerusalem and Judea. The expulsion of the Jews from Rome. The reign of Felix and Festus over the Roman Empire. Here, this book gives us what's going on in history at that time, but it also gives us the history of what was going on in the early church, in the rise of the early church. And then, you see in verse 3, he presented himself alive to them after suffering by many proofs. This Greek word of proof has this kind of meaning to it. It is a kind of a meaning that says there is no getting away. And that's what proofs do. That's what evidence does. You have to deal with it. You have to interact with it. There is something that has happened. There is no getting away from it. And that's what Acts is showing. This is what they're saying has happened. Now, what are you going to do with it? I love those videos where uh, those kids, like, they have chocolate all around their mouth or crumbs, and the parents ask them, um, where are the cookies? Or where's the brownies? And the kids say things like, um, I, I don't know. And the parents point at them and go, well, what's this around your mouth? And I love the rationalization. Um, uh, the cookie rubbed on my mouth by accident, or, you know, I don't know, I fell down in the dirt. You know, it's crazy the rationalization that is used, but the evidence is there. In the same way, we are confronted with histor history, with evidence. What are we going to do with it? When I'm talking to some of my friends who are non-Christians, or maybe you here are not a Christian and, and uh, are still processing what this means of Jesus' death and resurrection. And they ask me, well, what is the evidence that Jesus actually died and rose from the dead? What is the evidence that Christianity is even true? And when I use words like, or just one word, Bible, usually it causes kind of this reaction in people, especially in our culture. It's a very pejorative word the Bible. And automatically say, well, I can't take that, or I don't believe that, because it seems like we're kind of immune to this idea that the Bible is actually some historical book. But so now what I've gotten used to doing is when people ask me, show me the evidence of Jesus, I say, well, I can tell you that there are four different accounts written by four different people that collaborate amongst each other, that they're all on the same page, and they all give names and witnesses of people that saw what happened, and it was not written, they were not written long after Christ. And the response of people was like, well, sh well, I didn't know that. Show me that work. And then I say, well, guess what? That's the Bible. That's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's what the Bible is communicating. So I encourage you, if you're still processing this or thinking about this, the book of Acts makes us say there's no getting away with this. You have to deal with it.
My question is, as we go through the book, will you? Well, that's one. And I have to say that the Bible simply isn't, or Acts, is not simply an historical book. It's not simply a textbook. It's not just labeled with facts, places, names to memorize. It's more than that. It's also people living out the impact of the Christian message. You know, some of us were frustrated with the book of Amos because it was very poetic and prophetic, and it was dealing with things that might have felt more ethereal and dealing with the heart. Well, here you've come now to the right place, the book of Acts. How do we live this out practically? How does the church live out the message of the gospel in life? How do they deal with questions that people outside are wondering about this message? How do they deal with pushback and persecution about the message? How do they deal with the political realities that are around them? How do they deal with the decision-making in the early church? How do they live with each other? And how do they interact with their friends, their neighbors, and also the empire? And that's what Acts does. It puts us into an existential reality of how we actually live it out how it actually plays out into our lives. I love G.K. Chesterton and this quote that he gives. The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. I'm going to say it again. Chesterton says, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. Here in Acts, we see this group of people doing the difficulty of living out the gospel. And we see how hard it is. And in the midst of how hard it is, we see a community that loves each other, that gives justice to each other, that cares for each other, that gives their possessions to one another, we see the Christian message lived out. For some of you, you doubt that that's what the church is. Because some of you have experienced pain in the church and you wonder about what the church can do. I hope you might give a fair crack at these people in the book of Acts and how they live it out. And you might see that here is people living out a difficult message in a difficult time, and you see a community that was rich and is beautiful. This book simply isn't about history. This book also gives us answers to what we're supposed to do. This book simply isn't about existential living, although it gives us how we are supposed to live as people. This book also does one more thing. It gives us answers on how to live and how to be in this world from something outside of ourselves. It gives us something spiritual, something transcendent. 
Here we have Jesus ascending, going away from his followers. What did he give them? Here's five steps and what to do. Here's the game plan. Here's a manual. Here's what's supposed to happen. No, Jesus doesn't give them something just purely physical. Remember, John the Baptist, the beginning of Luke, gave us water. He baptized with that. But Jesus will give the Spirit who dwells among believers. And that is what is promised and given in the book of Acts. You see, Jesus' mission is not done. He is still interceding throughout this book. In fact, the very title, the Acts of the Apostles, seems a little bit misleading because we see that different apostles are emphasized at different times. Whether it's Peter at a certain time, whether it's Paul at a certain time, whether it's Barnabas, there's different people accentuated at different times in this book. But there is one person that is seen through the whole book, and that is Jesus Christ still interceding in his church through the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, if any of you are wondering at our writers, well, what is the point of this book? What is the thesis of this book? Well, they give it to us right here, like any good writer of an essay, in chapter 1, verse 8. Let's look at it, shall we? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. We see throughout this book of Acts that this small group of people is moved forward through the person of the Holy Spirit. That it permeates the early church. It's mentioned 60 times in this book. And we see that it's the enabler of the work to happen and spread throughout the world. And then also in verse 8, we see the structure of the book. We see it comes to Jerusalem and then Samaria and Judea, and then to the ends of the earth. And that's how the book is structured. In chapters 1 through 7, the message is to Jerusalem. And the chapters, and a few chapters after that, is the message to Samaria and Judea. And then for the majority of the book, until the end of the book, it tells about how this message goes to the ends of the earth. We don't have a whole year to go through this book. We only have 14 weeks and to do it justice, we are going to only look at how the message goes to Jerusalem. So we're going to be looking at chapters 1 through 7 in the next 14 weeks. And I hope you will join us as we look through those. And what we're going to see is, how does this message through the power of the Spirit impact the city of Jerusalem? And then we are going to see how does this message impact us as the church, Emmaus Road, to impact our city right before us. So that's what we're going to be emphasizing. And we're going to see how that can be done through a power outside of ourselves. So I would ask that you would read this book with us. You would join us in this adventure. And that it would make you think, what do I do with it? It's historical. Second, how does this tell me how I live out my life in Christian community? And thirdly, what power is needed to cause change in this city? So those are the three things that we are going to look at. Okay, great. 
Dan, you pumped us up. You've got us excited about this book. You're really an excitable person. That's wonderful. But I wonder if you realize what's going on in our world. Do you realize we are going through a pandemic? That people are angry. That the church seems to be in decline. That's why I think this book is going to be so good for us. The reason it's going to be so good for us is because it is going to tell us what the early church also faced, that kind of discouragement. If we think we've got it bad, could you imagine what it was like to be this small group of people and the disdain they might have faced from this message? From family members the idea that they were going to have to set, spread this message to an ethnic group that they hated, the Samaritans. That they were going to spread this message to the Roman Empire and they had no internet, they had no printing press. How was this going to happen? You've got to be kidding me that this is your mission, Jesus, for us to do. How are we as a small band going to do any of this? I understand this is the type of logic that works like this. They have it worse than us, so if they have it worse than us, then obviously we can still do it. You know, that's the argument that your parents sometimes make. Oh, you don't realize how bad I had it, right? Or how bad other people have it. You've got it good, so just deal with it, right? I don't find that to be the best motivator in life. At least it hasn't motivated me very well. So let me tell you this, that this group of people and how they responded to the mission that Jesus gave them was not very positive. That it seems the human condition throughout time is one that fails or one that is easily discouraged about the mission that God gives us. And as much as we might be discouraged right now, and we might have the wrong view of how this mission is going to go forward. That's also the way that the early church also viewed it in the wrong way. So, let me show how that's evident. And we're going to see that in verse 6 through 11. Again, Jesus has given them the plan. He's told them what's going to happen. He tells them the Spirit is coming. He tells them that um, He is going to go away from them. And here they are gathered together. And this is their response to Jesus. Please pay attention to what they say here. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? If there is any a time for Jesus to have the double face palm, what are you doing kind of, kind of posture, it would be this. For three years, Jesus has been telling them, I am not the Messiah the way that you think about a Messiah. I'm not this one that is going to come with a sword and come to conquer Israel so that you can conquer the world and you're going to be my generals. In that kind of nationalistic kind of thinking. No. Instead, my plan is that we would change the whole world with the good news of my death and resurrection. That we would topple nations, 
kings and evil strongholds by the Spirit working in people's lives through this message of death and resurrection and forgiveness of sins. Jesus is saying to his disciples who are thinking that this is some nationalistic message, that Jesus is going to be the general that just takes over Israel. He's saying your vision is too small. This is bigger than just Israel. This is a message that will turn the world upside down, even the Roman Empire. How great is this message? We see this message is so great, greater than any sword, that in just a few chapters later, we are going to see a man stoned to death. And this is what he says to those that pick up stones to kill him. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And you wonder about one man that watched that happen and participated in that Saul who then became Paul, who was one of the greatest instruments in the spreading of the gospel, who was the companion of this man who wrote this book. Do we see how much greater that this message is than any sword? Well, I am so glad that we have overcome as Christians any nationalistic notions that that's what the Christian message is, right? Aren't you glad we've, we've conquered that idea that nationalism is what wins us this battle? That we don't care, carry crosses into the capital in the name of Jesus? That we don't march around the capital for a Jericho prayer for the fall of our nation? If anything has shown us that we have not overcome this kind of thinking, I hope the past two weeks have. That some Christians, maybe even some of us, confuse the reign of our nation with the Christian message. Listen, I worked in the halls of Congress, and maybe that affects me more than it does you. Maybe it's just not a big deal, and you don't think about it very much. Maybe it's, I've been wrestling with it more than others. I get that. I used to roam those halls. I used to be on the floor of the house, and to see people breaking it down, to see people doing the things that they did, it hit me hard. And I will admit that I've had to process this over the past two weeks, some of my frustration, some of my anger. But things that I've started to see, and Acts has been really good in my heart. That hopefully with what we saw this week and what we're seeing in our nation, that we can all agree as the church that no right president, no legislation is going to solve the problem that we have in our nation. And that maybe the vision that those people had 
that they thought they could change our nation by storming the capital is way too small. That if you really want to turn the world upside down, you need a force outside of ourselves by the power of the Holy Spirit to change people's hearts from darkness to light. I wish, and I love this, the last hymn we're going to sing, it hits on some of these, these thoughts. I wish there was someone, a neighbor, a friend, that would have been talking to Ashley Babbitt over the past six months. Ashley Babbitt is that former military officer who bought a, uh, a pool restoration place in California but traveled to Washington, D.C. and stormed the Capitol and was shot and killed. And Ashley Babbitt was angry and frustrated about how the world was going and how America was going. She was frustrated and angry because she took out a loan for a business that was failing and they gave her 160% interest. Where was she going to turn? Where was she going to go? What was she going to do? Well, her answer was to pop on a plane, go all the way to Washington, D.C. to defend her savior, Donald Trump, and storm the Capitol. That was the answer for her. Where were we? Where was the church? Could we? Could we turn off the news and spend less time watching the news and then complaining about our neighbors that have certain signs in their lawn? Instead, we spend more time actually praying for them by name than then getting frustrated with them because what we're seeing on the news. That we would invite them into our lives and into our homes rather than being mad at them and telling them what the true hope of life is that is bigger than any legislation or any president or whoever wins. I'm not dumb. I know how some of, you, some of us think. Dan, it's a lot more nuanced than that. It's a lot more complex than that. You don't realize the kind of conversations I have with people and how hard and how difficult it is. It's so difficult to get through to people. Please hear this. This is not good argument kind of work. This isn't saying the right thing or doing the right thing. It is the work of the Spirit. This revolution happened because there was a force greater than themselves working in the hearts of people. And it's amazing how as the church we get away from there's an idea that there's actually a transcendent God that has to do the work upon our nation to change people's hearts. That we should be on our knees especially over these last two weeks, on our knees, saying, by the power of the Spirit, change people's hearts because people are angry.
People are angry right now. They are upset and they feel like they have no hope and nowhere to go. Where are we? Where are we as the church? And you feel, I, I know, like this guy is loud all the time. He just gets mad. He gets angry. I'm not. We need prophetic voice right now. I'm done with come to church and have some coffee Jesus time. I live that Christian life. I'm done with this. This is serious business. This is mission. What God has called us to. This is what he is doing. And where are we on mission? And it's, listen, I know my generation, I'm sorry, this is off book, but I'm just going to do it. I know my generation and younger. I know what we do. We watch Family Guy. We watch The Simpsons. We watch Rick and Morty. And what do we do with life? We just laugh it off and we don't deal the problems. If anyone takes it serious, we laugh them off too. Because you know what we do? We're nihilistic people that could give a rip and we don't care. That's my generation. Wake up! Wake up! I'm done laughing. We're done laughing at this. This is no joke. People are going to hell. And we are doing nothing but getting angry and thinking that a certain political person can win this battle. Sorry, that's... I'm, I'm preaching to myself too. God, help me, please. Help me. That I would not be scared of going to the bus stop or wearing a collar outside or just spreading the gospel. That I would not be scared of what people think or what people say. And we also see the response here. Now, I, 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 th I admit, it's probably quite a trip to watch the ascension of Jesus. Here you are at the Mount of Olives and a cloud comes. I love this a picture of like this fog that lifts Jesus up into the air. That would be cool. And I admit, I'd be looking up too. But you see that these followers of Jesus are missing what the cooler thing is. The cooler thing is to go out in mission and to share with other people about what Jesus has done. And we see two men come. It doesn't say angels. It says men. It makes me think that this isn't simply angels. It could be Elijah and Moses kind of going back to the idea of the transfiguration. And here they encourage them to say Jesus will come again to help them from any discouragement that they might have. That there will come a day that Jesus will make things all right. That there will be a new heavens and a new earth. That he will come again with a sword in judgment. But for right now, 
The plan and the mission is to go out and spread the good news. If Acts teaches us anything, it teaches us that the gospel and the message of the church isn't simply about self-help and navel-gazing, but it's about a message on the move. One error is armed revolt, that that is the message of the cross. But an equal and opposite error is to believe that the message of the gospel is, you do you and just leave me alone. In fact, when the Holy Spirit interacts with people and works in people and comes into people's lives and acts, it empowers people to speak with boldness about the gospel. And that's what we're going to see throughout the book of Acts these people emboldened by the Holy Spirit to speak the gospel to a world that has disdain towards it. So how did the church do it? How did they turn the world upside down? Well, they were given a mission directed by the Father, initiated through Christ, and moved forward in the church by the power of of the Spirit. Church, in these crazy times of anger, of frustration, of a rise of nationalism from the right, and the cancel culture from the left, how are we going to do it when being pressured from both sides? Well, church, we have been given a mission by our Father in Heaven, and we have been united with Christ and we have been given the power of the Holy Spirit to move forward in mission. I will close with this. I got a surprise call from one of my former Sunday school teachers this week. And she was feeling a little discouraged, but she had been reading through all old letters, and I had written her uh, a letter that I didn't remember like 15 years ago. And in the letter, I, I told her I was thankful for her for teaching me about God in Sunday school and how uh, she was persistent with me and loved me. I, I've said this before, I'll say it again, I was a hard-headed kid and I was one of those rabble-rousers in Sunday school and I was probably a jerk to teach, Okay. But she loved me. She, she loved me. And I was thanking her for that. And I was telling her about, I was, we were starting the book of Acts. And she, I had never actually heard her testimony. So she told me that she came to Christ in a Bible study in the book of Acts. She was married, had a young child who she brought with her to the Bible study. And she had this friend that told her about Jesus, and she came to know Jesus. And then she was studying Acts, and she had read the Bible before, and she had read the Sermon on the Mount, and she was like, this is impossible, I can't do this. But then when she came to faith in Christ, she said something changed in me, something spiritual happened. And then reading in Acts, I realized that I had received the Holy Spirit, and now she said, when reading through the Bible again and reading through the Sermon on the Mount, I realized that God had empowered me with the Spirit to do these things that I thought was impossible, which were without Him. 
And this is why she was discouraged. This daughter that she had brought to Sunday school was not, is now an adult. And she had called her these, like a week ago. And she had basically cussed out her mom. Saying, Mom, what we're seeing in our nation right now is your fault. It's Christianity's fault. And she was telling her, I, I never told my daughter who I voted for. I've never, never been political. But her daughter blamed the Christianity that she taught on what was going on in our nation. Christian, don't be surprised how people will respond to us. They will respond harshly. They will say all kinds of things against us. But this woman said, I was able to love my daughter and not respond in anger, but to respond in love, in patience, in kindness. Why? Because the Holy Spirit dwells within me. Church, we can respond to an angry nation and to angry friends, and people think that they can resolve this issue through pitchforks and political means. When we can respond to them with love and grace and patience and kindness and gentleness because the Spirit dwells among us and in us. Let that be our mission. And let Acts guide us in how we are going to do that in our city.